Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast community. We are so glad to be with you this morning, and we are looking ahead to Advent. Believe it or not, Advent is on its way. (laughs) And um, we are really grateful this morning to have um, a few of our good friends and colleagues on the show to talk about the Advent readings in the Revised Common Lectionary um, and think about how they intersect with creation care, the climate crisis, um, the ecology and theology. And so um, we're going to try something a little little different here and walk through those um, sets of texts today, hoping that if you're a preacher, this might give you some food for thought, or if you're just a listener who doesn't have to preach, um, maybe you're not even interested in, in that preaching side of things, um, we hope that it'll just give you some food for thought as we look at scripture and ecology together. So, um, Derek and I are thrilled to be joined today um, by two of our good friends um, who we're going to invite to introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm Wilson Dickinson. I live in central Kentucky and I teach theology and I'm the director of doctoral ministry and continuing education programs at Lexington Theological Seminary. And I'm also the director of the Green Good News, an organization that uh, works to educate, cultivate, and organize around issues of food justice, uh, sustainability, and discipleship. I'm Leah Shade. I teach preaching and worship at Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky. I'm ordained in the Lutheran Church, and I'm also the author of Creation Crisis Preaching, Ecology, Theology, and the Pulpit, and co-editor of a book with Margaret Bullitt Jonas called Rudin and Rising, Voices of Courage and a Time of Climate Crisis. On that note, Leah, can you give us a little bit of the big picture of preaching to the climate crisis and creation care, since this is something that you've done a lot of work on? Absolutely. What I draw on are six eco-justice principles that Norman Hobble laid out in his book, Readings from the Perspective of Earth. And I'm just going to very quickly go through those because I think that will help us to focus the texts from the ecological perspective. So one principle is the principle of intrinsic worth, the idea that the earth, the universe, and all its components have intrinsic worth and value. A second principle is that of interconnectedness, that the earth is a community of interconnected living things that are mutually dependent on each other for life and survival. A third principle is that of voice and agency, that earth is a subject capable of raising its voice in celebration and acting against injustice. A fourth principle is that of purpose, that the earth and all its components are part of a dynamic cosmic design in which each piece has a place in the overall goal of that design. Number five is the principle of mutual custodianship, that earth is a balanced and diverse domain where responsible custodians, that means human beings, can function as partners with rather than rulers over earth to sustain its balance and a diverse earth community. And finally, the principle of resistance, 
that Earth and its components not only suffer from human injustices, but actively resist them in the struggle for justice. Thank you. Those six principles are incredibly helpful um, for our readings, for our understandings of of how we're going to be approaching these texts um, over this over the period of this time. Uh, just so our listeners know, what we're doing uh, on this episode is a condensed version of a um, program that the four of us were a part of. Um, we're, we're, we've shrunk our 15-minute presentations down to five minutes so that we can um, uh, compensate the podcast and to have a little bit of time left over for discussion. Um, so I'm actually going to kick it off here with uh, our Advent 1 scriptures, and um, I'm mostly going to be focusing on Isaiah 64, 1 to 9, and Mark 13, 24 to 37. Um, it's been about seven years since I've been preaching on a weekly basis, um, but when I did preach on a regular basis, when we got to Advent 1, I, I love Advent 1. Advent 1 is, it's Apocalypse Sunday. Um, it's it's all of these texts about you know the sky turning black and there being war and 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 all these sorts of things about you know the end of the that feel like the end of the world. Um, but the thing about these apocalypse texts is that um, apocalypse isn't bad news for everyone. Um, apocaly- apocalypse is bad news for those who are benefiting from the structures that have made them rich or made them powerful. Apocalypse is uh, bad news for anyone who's invested in the status quo, but apocalypse can actually be good news for those who are living at the bottom of the social status strata, and, and it can be good news for the earth. Um, Isaiah begins his passage with, oh, that you would tear open the heavens. Um, and he, and then he makes references to the mountain shaking. He's actually, um, speaking on behalf of, of the oppressed and, and actually pleading with God to use nature to get the attention of, of those who are at the top of the food chain, um, because the people who are being oppressed don't have the ear of those who are powerful. Um, and so, it's actually invoking nature and, and going back to Leah's principles, it's actually asking, pleading for nature to be an actor in the cause for justice. Um, one of the things that we tend to get caught up in as readers of the scripture in 21st century is we tend to center ourselves. Um, we tend to make ourselves the heroes. We tend to make ourselves the, the victims of injustice. But it's really important for us to understand that um, we need to de- decentralize ourselves sometimes. We need to develop a hermeneutic where we are not the heroes. We are not the center figures. Um, and if we're reading this passage and we're thinking about climate and we're thinking about the earth, we're thinking about the earth crying out, we have to recognize that people of color, people in developing nations are bearing the brunt of the climate change activities that we are contributing heavily to as people who are living in the United States. It's those folks who are um, in, in the developing world who are experiencing droughts. It's those parts in the developing world that are experiencing hurricanes. Um, it's, it's our actions as consumers, you know, the largest consuming uh, nation in, this, in the world. Um, it's our actions that are often leading to 
the effects of climate change being so detrimental in other parts of the world. I wanna jump forward uh, to Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 24 to 37. Um, and in, in that passage, um, Jesus again talks about the sun darkening and stars falling from the heavens and all these sorts of things. And then he says these words from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Um, again, there are some assumptions being made. This is a, this is a scripture written to an agrarian people who have a sense of what it means to be in rhythm with nature. Um, and what happens to a culture that loses its ability to read nature's signs? Well, Jesus is saying that we'll, we'll know the signs of, of the end of things, uh, the ways that we know the signs that nature gives us. And if we, are, if we are missing the signs of nature, if we are disconnected to the natural rhythms, we're disconnected to what nature is trying to tell us, then we might actually be missing the signs of the things that are going to bring our own destruction. We might actually be missing the signs of things like climate change and the things of, and, and soil degrade, degradation and all the little pieces of, of, that are happening in our natural world that are telling us these are warning signs. And we are disconnected from those things. Instead of saying uh, to the fig tree that, uh, doesn't produce in the winter uh, that, okay, now it's not the time. What we try to do is to change the fig tree instead of learning from its lessons. Um, so this is a, this is a reminder uh, and a call for us to reconnect with learning the natural rhythms, to know what's going on in the, in the natural world and to respond um, responsibly uh, to, seeing those, to seeing those signs that nature is trying to give us. And I will wrap up there. So that takes us to Advent 2, um, which is Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, and Mark 1, 1 through 8. And this, these two texts, something that they have in common is a refrain about wilderness and about making ways straight. I really been thinking about um, that the time of Advent is, we talk a lot about the time of preparation, a time of waiting, and it's interesting to think about what is it that we're waiting for? Um, you know, we can talk very specifically about what our, you know, Christmas um, traditions are or favorite things that happen in this season of Advent. But on a bigger picture and on a theological picture, I wanna ask the question of how do we prepare for the incarnation? If the incarnation is this inbreaking of hope and healing justice and peace in the world, and as both Leah and Derek have pointed to, that this, this kind of inbreaking, this renewal, this, this is not just about people, it's also about this planet that we live on and, and the interconnection between us. And so in this Isaiah text, in this Mark text, we have these lines that are prepare, make straight a desert and a highway from our, for our God in um, the Isaiah texts or in the Mark text, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who prepares the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so I want to think that today about this idea of preparation or making paths straight 
maybe it is to clear away and to repent, which I think has something to do with what Derek was talking about, about paying attention and noticing the signs of creation around us. Now I have to say, when I think about this in terms of creation care, think about these making paths straight and making highways, I do get a little stuck on these images of changing the land from the twisting, winding, hilly paths to straight highways. I have these negative images of mountaintop removal or habitats being bulldozed for literal highways to be built or marshes being filled in and um, roads going across them. But I think that this passage, these passages really do invite us into attention. And it's this tension about whether we are working with the land or we are working to change it or have power over it. Um, and I think that, of course, if we look a little bit more deeply into um, the Greek and Hebrew, we can also quickly be drawn into that more metaphorical reading of the text too, that we can hold in tension with the more literal readings of the text that this straight way also could be read as the right way or straightforward, upright, true, and sincere. That to make smooth or to make straight could also be a call to us in our thinking and in our acting. Because of course, especially in the gospel passage that this image is directly call followed by Jesus's calls to repentance this idea of how we are called to change our minds and change our actions. And I think it's an invitation to think, change the way we think and act and feel about creation. I don't think it's a big stretch for any of the listeners on our show to make the claim that we have major systems and policies and minds and hearts that need to be changed around the way that we engage with our planet. That the entire narrative of how we interact with our planet and each other needs to shift. And that the church has a part in this and that these narratives that we are so familiar with as the, the nice advent story are actually something that are quite profound and demanding to us, that they're actually asking us to change our hearts and our minds and our actions. And so the invitation I think this these texts give us in our time of Advent too, is to do some of that work of preparation. Maybe it's lament, maybe it's confession, maybe it's naming, maybe it's learning more about how our local communities and the creation around us um, have been affected by people bulldozing and making paths straight. Um, maybe it's some of that deeper work of changing the very narrative of how we look at God's creation in a theological lens as part of the system that we are part of and interconnected with rather than something that we as humans rule over. And so to prepare for the incarnation, I think we're being called to clear away, to clear away in our own hearts and minds in our communities, hearts and minds, to have that inbreaking of healing, of justice, of love, and of peace in the world. We're going to pause for a minute and say Advent 1 and 2. What, what is coming up for you, Leah or Wilson, before we, um, um, or, or Derek, I know all of us will have a little discussion on Advent 1 and 2 before we move on to 3 and 4. Well, if, if I could make a kind of connection between what two of you all were saying, um, 
know, where, where Derek was talking about, you know, listening to um, kind of the rhythms of nature. And you were talking about the, the, the season of preparation and clearing away. And, and both of you, like how there's this countercultural aspect to that. It reminds me of something that I, uh, I saw um, our mutual friend, Matthew Wesley Williams say the other day, where he was talking about this huge shift in his prayer life, where he stopped praying about with the metaphors of productivity and started praying about fruitfulness, right? Mm. He wanted fruitfulness in his life. And that that shift um, was, was a big shift that, that made a space for this season, right? Made a space for this season in terms of what's happening outside and makes a space for this season in terms of a season of waiting. And that that idea of fruitfulness, right? To where there has to be a season of growth, there has to be a season of rest, you know, that, that all those things play their role in, in what is nurturing um, and nourishing in the future. Um, and, and I think that's, that is so profoundly countercultural, right? Because the, the metaphors of productivity are, are those like kind of clandestine, that's, that's the cultural narrative that we have that is actually chewing up our world, right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. th- that's the central value of neoliberalism. I agree. And one of the things that I have always pre- appreciated about Advent is its countercultural narrative, knowing that we're, we're in uh, an economic system that is about extraction. It is about taking advantage of, of people and their labor and earth itself. And so, uh, you know, when, when Derek is saying we need to pay attention to what earth is telling us in the midst of this. And I'm thinking back to um, when, when the coronavirus initially, when it, when it, when it hit and everybody was forced into a, a, a Sabbath period and you could see earth renew itself. The skies cleared, animals started showing up in places where humans had been, um, you know, waters were cleaner. It was just incredible. The resiliency of earth when it is given the space and time to recover. And so my hope is that we can recall that and say, maybe we can pay attention to the fig tree, pay attention to all the trees and what were they saying to us? And is there a way that we can restructure our lives and our economy and our our, our patterns of living so that we are making space for God's creation and letting it teach us? That's really good. And I, I just want to add, you know, one of the things that, and I was really struck when you, we did this presentation earlier, when with this idea of making paths in the wilderness, and then kind of you juxtaposing that with things like mountaintop removal and, and, and highways. And I, and I was really struck by that and, and actually kind of shaken by it. Um, and I also want to want to, um, throw into into this conversation the fact that we are a part of nature and a part of our nature as humans is to manipulate the environments that were around us that are around us and that can be done for good or for ill but mm-hmm. I, I but I, I, I guess I actually needed to reconcile I needed to wrestle with that a little bit and I, I'm so glad that you gave me that that image to wrestle with because I I it was it was a really powerful it was a really powerful thing and I and I, I would just kind of encourage, you know, if you're preaching on those this uh, that text to 
let that let that wrestling happen. That's because I, I was it was a really powerful, profound moment for me. You know, Derek, when I um, I, I used to be a hunter. Hmm. Uh, I don't hunt anymore. But um, <clears throat> growing up in the woods of Pennsylvania, um, tramp, tramping through the woods, you start to learn to identify the the trails that the deer have made through the woods. And it's very different than the paths that the humans make through the woods. Mm. And one of the things that I notice about the deer paths is that it, it's like water, you know, they find the path of least resistance. They're not cutting down trees. They're not, you know, muscling their way through. Sometimes they do, but what happens is it happens over time and, and they, you know, they're, they're following the, the sense of each other to say, ah, yeah, this works. And over time, you can see that the path kind of evolve, but it's a very clear path. Mm. So I like that imagery more than, yeah, we're just going to bulldoze our way <laughs> through this. Um, and again, so paying attention to nature, what can we learn about, not that we have to just you know, we're often accused of being Luddites wanting to live in caves. That's not what this is about at all. It's learning to listen. It's learning to be partners with rather than um, hierarchical lords over. Yeah. But I do, I, I do think that you highlighted an interesting uh, different set of orientations, right? That are, are they're all a part of this movement. So like for the environmental justice movement, for example, the the emphasis is not placed on nature, but it's placed on the environment as the place where we live, work, and play, right? So it's our habitat. And so the, the icon for that movement is the urban community garden, right? So it is, it's the place where cultivation and creation meet. And, and, and that's just, that's a different orientation from the icon of the environmental movement, which is, you know, it's the woods or it's the mountain vista or it's the, the park. And so it's, they're just kind of different orientations that, um, that, that sometimes are intention, but oftentimes can be complementary. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, let's move on to Advent, uh, Advent 3. Right. And Wilson, you've just set me up for some things that I'm going to say about this text. So this is texts, plural. Uh, I'm going to look at three of the texts and go through them very quickly. The first is Isaiah 61, 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. And one verse that I want to focus on is <clears throat> where it says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. And so I just want to throw out some questions that if you're, if you're preaching this text or if you're in a congregation, just to think about, what does it mean to be an oak of righteousness when it comes to environmental justice? What does it mean for the church to be made up of? oaks of righteousness. If your church has an ecology ministry, how might we think of that as a planting of the Lord? You know, this is, this is God's work. And how does this eco-ministry display God's glory? So give examples of what's being done in your congregation that brings good news to the oppressed and binds up the brokenhearted and proclaims liberty to the captives and releases the, pr the prisoners. Uh, the following verse is also very important. Verse, verse four, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And this is getting back to your point, Wilson, that 
when we think of the, the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world, I'm thinking specifically about these ruined cities. And I've done some work um, here in Lexington on urban tree health, working with organizations like um, uh, 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 Tree Lexington and the University of Kentucky has done some training of citizen scientists to observe tree health. And one of the things I learned is that urban tree health is one of the key indicators of a healthy city. So an abundance of healthy trees in a neighborhood raises property values, reduces water runoff, and correlates with crime reduction, as well as creating a really welcoming atmosphere. So these oaks of righteousness, you're right, it's, it's not just, it, it, it's, it, they are complementary. We want to save the wild places, the places where humans don't often go, because that's really important. But we also want to preserve the urban forests that are helping to restore the cities. Um, then with, um, uh, I just want to point out that in verse 11, where it says that uh, the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to bring up, to spring up before the nations. It's just worth noting here that Isaiah is comparing God with a garden, with earth itself. So this means that sacredness is ascribed to earth. So this is getting back to that principle of voice and agency that I had mentioned earlier. So earth has agency here. It's not just a passive entity. Moving on to Psalm 126. This is the Psalm where we get the, the, the song bringing in the sheaves, which some people might be familiar with. But um, in verse four, it talks about restoring our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. And the, the Negev was a, a semi-arid region in Israel that had just enough rain to sustain agriculture. So we might think about how can we sustain areas that are experiencing environmental devastation? You know, just even just a little bit of water in the desert can make a difference. And, you know, sometimes we get overwhelmed, like the, the tasks are so, so huge, but every little, every little thing that we, that we do counts. So when they talk about the, you know, people go out weeping, bearing seed to sow, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in the sheaves. It's a vision of grief and hope that they're inextricably tied with caring for the land. So how can we live that out in our ministry, in our congregations? And then finally, um, I want to talk a little bit about Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verses 46b to 55. And I want to imagine earth singing alongside and even through Mary's voice because Mary is a child of earth um, and she's a daughter of agrarian peasants. So what significance does her song have for her people rooted in an agrarian economy that is suffering under extractive powers? So who are the lowly ones in creation that sing along with Mary today and envision God's favor for them? What does that look like? And so I'd love us to think about considering Mary's Magnificat within the biotic realm and environmental justice issues as well. Ooh, I just had to sit with that image of Mary 
the Magnificat, the earth singing along side and through the Magnificat. That's, that's profound. Um, we'll have a chance to respond more, but um, Wilson, take us home, Advent 4. Yeah, so, so for Advent 4, I'm just focusing on one text. And uh, how I want to approach that text, I think, is it's informed also by how I kind of understand Advent. So if Advent is a com it was about preparation for the coming of Christ. You know, Christ is just a Greek word for Messiah. And Messiah is God's anointed uh, to bring about transformation and new creation. Right, so uh, Advent is about preparation for the person who makes a path. Um, and so I want to look at uh, Luke 1, uh, 26 to 38. So it's a story of uh, the foretelling of Jesus or Mary's Annunciation. Um, and and what, what I want to, I guess, my kind of approach to this story, which I think is also what the story is doing, um, but is it comes from uh, Alejandro Garcia Rivera has this notion of foregrounding, right? Where you take something that's in the margins or you take something that's in the background and you put it at the center of, of attention. And so the elements of this story that I would um, really want to emphasize um, are, well, f first of all, you know, Nazareth, right? So this is the setting and oftentimes we, we overlook the actual kind of geography of the stories. And, and as John Dominic Crossan likes to say, you know, Nazareth is Nowheresville in the ancient world, right? It's this tiny place. It's just a collection of a few houses, really. It's some, it's some agricultural families. And it's, it's this place that lives um, at the kind of crossroads of, covenant, right, and, and this kind of sustainable agrarian way of life and empire, uh, the, the forces of extraction and exploitation. Um, so I think that that kind of sets the background. And, and in Nazareth, right, we're introduced to uh, this young, poor woman who, who has a real revolutionary spirit, right, as, as Leah talked about in, in the Magnificat. Um, you know, so the, the, the poem that she sings in the next chapter, which is also... Um, connected to uh, Advent 4, it's one of the, it's also one of the options for, it's like an alternative for the psalm. Um, so, so this figure Mary is initially introduced as marginalized, right? So initially Mary in verse 27 is introduced as Joseph's uh, fiance and Joseph, we we're even told Joseph's lineage of the house of David, but Mary is, is secondary to Joseph. But then in verse 28, we're told that, that Mary is the favored one of God in verse 38, Mary is the servant of the Lord, which means she belongs to God's household. So there's this kind of foregrounding that goes on in the story where this uh, poor peasant woman um, is actually becomes the, the agent, uh, the, the, the person that is helping to make the path for the transformation to new creation. And also at the heart of the story is the kind of the, the promise of Jesus's kingship, but as is made clear throughout Luke and the Gospels, um, and, and even in the kind of the, the precursors of, of how I think the Gospels mostly understand the messianic character of Jesus is, is, is Isaiah, right? And so it's the, spring, it's the sprout out of the shoot of Jesse, it's the shoot out of the stump of Jesse, the Emmanuel, God with us, but also the suffering servant. So this kind of subversive, uh, different kind of messianism. Um, and, and this is made crystal clear by Mary in the Magnificat, right, where uh, there's the reversals of the kingdom, right? This, there's this foregrounding that happens where the powerful are brought down and the lowly are lifted up, right? The hungry are filled and the rich go away empty. So I would want to kind of do this foregrounding 
um, with this story to, to show how there, there's this other path, right, that, that's leading out to, into the new creation. And, and I think that you could make kind of a, a, a neat uh, connection with uh, maybe one of the origin stories of the environmental justice movement where you have, that begins right in the early 80s in Nowheresville in Warren County, Pennsylvania, um, where there was, there was efforts to, re, to kind of locate uh, a, a dump, uh, a kind of a landfill with lots and lots and lots of toxic waste um, in, in a rural and, and largely black community. And so in that community, there was uh, a pushback. And this is, again, the beginning of environmental justice movement led, led largely, largely by uh, a woman and a church leader, um, Dolly Burwell. And she helped to, to kind of galvanize this organization, which, uh, which, which used some of the tactics of, of, of nonviolence from the civil rights movement and, and really has informed the environmental justice movement since. So again, I, I would, I'd be interested in kind of using this story to show uh, a different kind of path through maybe people we don't expect. And so, but depending on the location of the congregation, I'd, well, I guess leave you with a couple of questions. Maybe some are more appropriate for some communities, some for others. So maybe one of the orienting questions could be, is our place that marginal community that will mother revolution? Um, or is there a neighborhood or a community marginal to our world, which we need to look to and listen to, um, to see the work of God? Um, or and in this time of, of anticipation, uh, how can we foreground the spirit of God moving in the background? So again, I would look at this little story and think about how to foreground the person who is showing us a path into new creation. So much to think about. What is present for people with Advent three and four? You know, that I'm still, I, I think that for, for me, bringing the two together, I'm still really um, stuck on and struck by that idea of the earth singing alongside and through Mary and the Magnificat and thinking of that with this foregrounding idea that there's something about actually, I, I, as both of you are speaking, I kept having these images come. Like I, I wanted to like do some art <laughs> to go with that, that like literally moving something like moving the earth forward in the Magnificat or moving the, you know, the, the place of Nazareth forward in, in the, in the image. Um, so I, I appreciate those images. One of the things that I'm reminded of too is uh, Mary is is young. She's a young woman. And I'm thinking of the, the young people who are so active in the climate movement, really. Um, the climate march, um, Extinction Rebellion, um, the, the young people who are suing the, the government uh, to act on climate change because it's, it, it's violating their rights. And so I wonder what it might look like to foreground some of these young people in the sermon to say, look, they are showing the way, they are leading us, they are, they are making a path for us and lift up um, you know, some of these leaders. Uh, in a book that I mentioned earlier, Rooted in Rising um, that I co-edited, there is a, um, a chapter by Karina Newsom, who is um, a, a young black naturalist. 
and she has become a rock star on Twitter and in um, uh, in, in just the, the environmental world because she brings animals to the hood and she brings young black children into the, the world of science and observation. She's bridging, she's blazing trails and she's fantastic. Um, so, you know, lifting up somebody like her as a kind of Mary figure, again, earth singing through her. She posts these, these little videos on Twitter showing us the tiniest little tadpoles or birds or snakes that most of us would just never observe. We would just pass by. And people are fascinated by this. She is showing us things that we need to see. So that, that could be an opportunity in preaching. Yeah. I love that. I also, Leah, you know, you, you made a very uh, brief mention of the Negev. And um, I also think we need to foreground these features, these of, of the rivers, the, the lands. Um, we, you know, we, when we read these scriptures, so oftentimes these, these uh, rivers are mentioned and we know nothing about them. And we just kind of move on to the stuff that's important, right? Uh, the theological stuff. Um, instead of actually diving into what, what did these geographical features mean for the people in their context? And what do we know about our own watershed? What do we know about our own, um, you know, tributaries and, 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 and their, you know, stormwater management and, and all those things that, that feel very background for us that need to be brought into focus because they have such incredible impact on the way we live our lives and the way that future generations will live their lives. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, in uh, Creation Crisis Preaching, I give people an exercise for figuring out who is my neighbor in creation around the church. Hmm. And there's a set of you know things that you can do, taking walks, looking at maps, talking to um, uh, naturalists in the area, talking to health professionals, you know, how do they see environmental issues affecting the health of people in our community? Um, and then thinking of our neighbors expansively, who, you know, the, the, the stream is our neighbor, the, the, uh, like you said, the watershed is our neighbor in creation. And how is, you know, when you think about the, the story of, um, you know, the, who was my neighbor led to the story of the Good Samaritan. And what makes a neighbor in that story is the one who suffers. Mm. So how do we see creation suffering? And how do we see our role as the church to tend to the, the suffering man or woman or aspect of creation along the side of the road? I think that's a really good connection to make. There's there's also an in I guess attending to kind of the geography of of the ancient Near East and, and of Israel. It there there's some I think that there's some kind of interesting historical accidents that shape the Bible that have to do with the geography, right? So there's this book from the 80s, right? This giant book, The Tribes of Yahweh by uh, Norman Gottwald that is built on all this archaeology, and I think it's, it's pretty well supported, this idea that what the ancient Israelites were, were this kind of confederacy of people that lived up in the hills. 
in the hill country, right? And that they, because of that specific geography, right, which is seen as marginal and not really worthwhile, they were able to create this different kind of collective, right? Power organized in a different way because it wasn't this flat land that can be turned into plantations. It's not easy to get commodity goods out of that. So they, so in the hill country, what the ancient Israelites were, were this kind of like Canaanite split off that because of that geography that other people didn't find worthwhile, they were able to create a different kind of culture that was organized around a different kind of holiness, sacredness, and power. Right? And so I think that there's, I think there's something at work in our world right now, right? Where, there, where those same kind of places that are, those same rural places, right? Or those same places that are seen as maybe not as easily exploited and extracted from where different kinds of organization are happening there, right? And that's starting to bubble out, right? So that's, that's I think that's part of the, the, the movement that's, that's happening that we, that some of the movements that, that have really been taking hold this summer, you know, from Sunrise to, to Black Lives Matter, I think are, it's, it's something similar is taking place where these, these geographies and these spaces are creating a different kind of power and, and different kind of spirit. Boy, Wilson, when I hear you describe the, the, the hill people, I just can't help but think of Appalachia. I mean, that is exactly the, the kind of geography that, that <laughs> has created a very specific culture, but it's a really diverse culture. One of the things I learned in a, I, I led an immersion course for our students at the, at the seminary last summer, and we learned just how um, complex it is. It doesn't fit the stereotypes that we see on, on television or, you know, these, these awful tropes that we have of people who live in Appalachia. But they, they have developed a very close relationship with the land, but they've also been put into positions where they can only survive because of the extraction that has happened. And they're starting to recognize that that way of life is not sustainable and to reimagine what does life look like in community? Can we return to the, uh, the economy of bartering that existed in Appalachia before all of the extraction industries came in? Um, there's some interest in, in um, revisiting those economies of the past because they worked in the hill country. Mm. Well, I think that's a beautiful lead into our final question, which um, is our traditional way we like to end end our podcast conversations, which is what's giving you hope and maybe specifically what's giving you hope as we approach this Advent season. Um, and we often talk about this isn't a kind of hope that covers up that which is unjust and um, needing healing, but it's, it's, the, it's the hope of the example of bartering being reimagined, the way that goods are exchanged being reimagined in Appalachia. It's the hope of, of, you know, young leaders. It's the hope of ways that the church can be, be part of, part of this work. So Leah, what's bringing you hope as we enter this Advent season? What's bringing me hope are the, the pastors who are engaging in this work, who are finding their prophetic courage and who are supporting each other in this work. Um, I co-founded a group called the Clergy Emergency League this past summer in light of all of the things that were going on politically to help support pastors in thinking through how do we preach about justice issues in areas where we're gonna get pushback. And so we have like 
almost 2,300 pastors now in this group and reading their stories, seeing their discussions and seeing this, this growing bravery to step into these spaces and to tell the story of hope in their context, because it can feel really overwhelming. I mean, we have huge, huge tasks ahead of us, politically, environmentally, with race, with gender issues, with LGBTQ issues, like all of these things that can feel really overwhelming. And so we're going to have to preach love in creative and joyous ways to sustain ourselves for this work. And I see pastors really stepping up and wanting to do this. And that gives me hope. Thank you. Thank you. How about you, Wilson? Uh, I think part of what gives me hope is just, it's also part of what's made this year so hard. Um, you know, there's, there's been such, uh, such an unveiling of how, um, how systemic the roots of the problems we face are and how, how connected they are. Um, and it's been relentless and there has not been an escape from it. Um, and I think that that has greatly widened the circle of the coalition of people who are open to a different way of life and who are understanding that it will take the rest of our lives um, to, to do the work to make change. Now, also, I think that it's, it's radicalized and energized a lot of people in, in opposite directions. Um, I think a lot of terrible things have happened in this past year. I think a lot of uh, the wrong kinds of networks of power have consolidated power. But I do, I, I really think that there's, that there's a lot of people who have, you know, who have, have kind of woken up or, or who are in, in a kind of uh, real lived way um, participating in and experimenting with and exploring um, what, what the alternative looks like and how we can do this together and collectively. So that gives me hope. What, what about you, Anna? Oh, me? Wait, I was going to ask Derek first. Oh, oh. Very tricky, Wilson. Very tricky. Um, gives me hope is that people are turning their attention to these questions. The, it, this conversation we're having now, the incredible work that all of you are doing in your various circles, um, conversations and that I see within, you know, within a small congregation that I'm pastoring that they're people who deeply care about how the church and the world interact. And I think that gives me hope is seeing the church being the church in ways that are acknowledging the deep connectedness and embeddedness that we all have with these various um, areas that of injustice and need for justice. And I think the other thing that gives me hope and it goes back, um, Leah, I'm just so grateful for this image of the Magnificat. It gives me hope is artists and poets and um, the ability to continue to imagine what could be. And 
and the tenacity and the um, the steadfastness that is in in that ability to continue to imagine that that gives me hope. Derek, finish us off. So, what brings me hope? Um, this is going to be a really different advent. Um, we're seeing coronavirus numbers go through the roof right now, um, and and whether and it's going to get cold, and we're going to be forced inside and forced into separate places in ways that this is going to affect our understanding and looking at Advent in some really profound ways. And I, my hope is that we can actually stop and sit with this season of waiting, of, of anticipation, when, when we're kind of in this place of waiting for a vaccine, when we're kind of in this place of waiting for a new administration, we're kind of in this place of waiting with, with all kinds of hope, yet all kinds of fear. I think this is, this, this is, I saw on Twitter, you know, someone, people had been saying like this past Lent was the Lentiest Lent of all Lents. This is going to be the Adventiest Advent of all Advents. Um, and I, I, I think that there's a real, there's a place for this Advent to feel more real than it has in, in years past. And, and um, that waiting, I think, includes, you know, preparing um, ourselves to be actors in the world differently, um, actors in our environments differently, actors alongside our environment differently, actors with the rest of the created order differently. Um, so my hope is that we'll take advantage of, of what is going to feel like a very, very, very strange advent. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to explore these scriptures and thank you for your work in the world. And to all our listeners, we invite you into these conversations and these ponderings as well. Um, we always feel, feel free to connect with us on social media, Food and Faith Pod and Food and Faith Podcast. Um, we always welcome you to support us on Patreon and so we can keep this work going and we would love to hear what's giving you hope this advent season and blessings to all the preachers may the holy yes. inspire amen <laughs> adventy of adventus adventy what did you say derek the, the adventiest advent the adventiest advent um may we we feel that spirit of god um incarnate here with us Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.